Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. One, two, tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, a classic album dissection of Funhouse by the Stooges. It's the Stooges' second album, and it's a masterpiece of rock, jazz, and mayhem. But see, with Iggy, recording was even a violation of the code. He didn't even like to be defined like that. We'll break down Funhouse track by track and hear from the album's producer and the Stooges' guitarist. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and it's time for one of our periodic classic album dissections, The Stooges' Funhouse, the second album by The Stooges, a band better known for spawning Iggy Pop than any hit singles. Iggy was only 23 when they recorded Funhouse, a few years removed from when he was known as Jim Osterberg. The record has two very different sides. Side one is proto-punk blues songs. The single, Down on the Street. Down on the Loose. TVI. She got a TVI on me. And dirt. dirt. Side two gets more and more chaotic, with Steve McKay's saxophone bringing a complete free jazz feel to songs like 1970. Funhouse. Fun and LA Blues. The hard rock avant-garde combination sold poorly, and the Stooges were dropped from their label only a few months later. Still, a lot of musicians hold Funhouse as a creative peak for the band. Jim, we're very excited to talk about uh, A, the Stooges, period, and what I think in many ways is the greatest rock and roll record ever made of wow. Funhouse. <laughs> You're coming right you know, out of the gate with that, huh? Exile on Main Street, The Stones, you know, yep. Revolver by the Beatles. I'd put First Funhouse. four Ramon albums. Yeah, i put Funhouse right up there with all of them. You really? Know? I think it's a fantastic record. It was one of those records that accrued in depth and uh, influence as the decades passed. None of the Stooges records were greeted enthusiastically. <laughs> no. Except for a, a handful of critics. A little background on the band. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jim Osterberg is a drummer in a bunch of uh, garage rock bands at the time. He uh, spends a summer in Chicago and, and, and basically works beside the great Chicago blues man. He loved blues. He loved uh, the feel of that music. Seeing it performed in its element in those Southside clubs, very often the only white face in many of those clubs. I think a lot of the African-American guys and audience members took pity on little Jim Osterberg because they <laughs> yeah, yeah. look, this, like, this guy looks a little lost, you know, but he's obviously into what we're doing. Osterberg fancied himself a drummer. He learned from the great Sam Lay how to be a real drummer, mm-hmm. came back to Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan, inspired. In 1967, he said, you know, I want to get together a band. He recruited three guys. 
that he said were his vision of primitive man. <laughs> and I think he meant that as both yeah, they, they were. an insult and a compliment because mm-hmm. he loved the fact that these guys were sort of untutored, but they had sort of a basic idea of what rock and roll can and should be uh, that he shared with them. Uh, the brothers Ron and Scott Ashton, Ron on guitar, Scott on drums, and then Dave Alexander on bass. He later celebrated these three in a song that he wrote, David Bowie produced record, uh, and called them the Dumb Dumb Boys. And again, <laughs> uh, both an insult and a compliment. He, yeah. lo- he loved what those guys brought to the table. Sadly, Iggy's the only original member of the Stooges still alive. In 2006, we interviewed Ron Ashton on Sound Opinions. He's the guitarist. Here's what he had to say about those early days in the band. We ate together, we partied together, we just totally hung out. And everything we did, we always went as a unit. It's like, here they come. (laughs) It was like the monkeys, yeah, here they come. (laughs) You know, it's that. You would not see one rarely without the other. I would have liked to have seen the Stooges TV show. So messed up, I want you here. Imagine living in the 60s where we were also outsiders where the college is here in town, Ann Arbor, you got your beatniks, which you barely see around, but you got your frat boys that would throw beer cans at us when we're walking down the street, way before we even got on stage and got stuff thrown at us. So we would go into restaurants and not be served because of the way we looked. A miss, not going to serve you. And we were like the real Three Stooges. (laughs) <laughs> Hence, I came up with the name the Stooges. You rarely see any of the Stooges away from each other unless they're getting to some mischief or they're separated by some other evil force. <laughs> <laughs> we had Toad Hall, then Stooge Hall, which became Fun House. That Fun House was actually our house. We called the house the Fun House. Mm-hmm. Iggy was an accomplished drummer. He could play drums quite well. He actually went to Chicago and studied under Sam Lay, who played yeah. drums with Butterfield. Mm-hmm. So my brother also had played drums in the school, and he also played the harmonica. And myself, I've already played guitar. I took lessons in accordions, and I, I had a high school band where I played bass guitar. We, I actually played every weekend all over southern Michigan, southeast Michigan. So we did have a musical background. The thing was, when we got together, we wanted to do something different. And it was fun doing that, but that also gave us the opportunity to be on stage and start to develop what we became on that first record. Their first record, three of the four, everyone except Iggy, had never been in a recording studio Mm -hmm. before. They got thrown in a studio uh, with Elektra Records, recording with John Cale as the producer, uh, fresh off the Velvet Underground. This Co-founder was, of the Velvet Underground, yeah. you know, who loved their primitivism. Yeah, and uh, Elektra Records had just signed them, uh, you know, on the recommendation of the MC5, their fellow uh, Michigan band. Yeah, they were uh, the little brother band to yes. the MC5, is how it was considered. And Elektra, which was basically a folk label, uh, really loved the potential of the MC5. And you know, when we spoke to Electra founder Jack Holtzman in 2011, he explained what the heck he was thinking when he signed them. I was interested in how the MC5 used their music to advance their agenda, which is why I wanted to record them. 
Of course, they also said you, you really have to take this other sort of mascot group we have, which turned out to be the Stooges, that I was a bit resistant to at the beginning, but that Danny Fields, who was one of our artist relations people, talked me into. And it's like someone has talked you into buying a fine painting, uh, except you didn't know it was a fine painting at the time, and later becomes enormously valuable. I was willing to take chances. I guess that was the difference. Uh, I was of the opinion that if you made the records carefully at reasonable cost and everybody was prepared, the worst thing that could happen was that the record didn't work, at which point you'd give the masters back to the artist and wish them well. But it did work, and uh, the rest is history with regard to the Stooges. No Electra signed them and they said, okay, we've got some songs to, uh, shaping up here. Kale took them into the studio, helped them shape it some more. You know, you talk to the band members decades after the first record came out in 1969, basically called The Stooges, mm-hmm. and, and they liked the record. It's one of the most influential records of all time, uh, but at the same time, they had their reservations about it. You know, they thought John Kale wanted to, quote-unquote, produce us. Yeah. And we felt in some ways we're not a band you can just take into a studio and say, record a record like everybody else I, under I the think, same conditions. I, I think, Greg, we have to put that in perspective. John Cale, one of the maestros of chaos of all time in rock yeah. and roll. I mean, Sister Ray, okay? Right. And he's cleaning you up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I think they were all kind of uh, taken aback that this guy was trying to shape their songs. And what's interesting to me about Funhouse, when they go into the studio for that, they are a Kraken live band by this point. They had been on the road for a year playing the songs off the 1969 album, debut album. Uh, but then they, you know, they got bored with that. So they started developing new material. Again, guitarist Ron Ashton. Once we made the first record, we were out, play, play, play. Got book an agent, we're out there. Every time we took a little break from the road, we try to come up with a new piece of music or two to integrate into the set. You needed some more material, you get tired of dragging things out. You've got to write more songs. So every time we came back, we wrote songs, we'd write a couple more songs, go back out and play. So it evolved that Funhouse, all the things that are on there became the major part of our set. So we kind of switched over sets and that's when Don Gallucci was sent by Electra for it's time to make another record. Hmm. He'd come and see some live shows, and that's what he wanted to capture. So like I said, a little thing, when we do go slide in the blues, down Ann Arbor, Michigan, Jack Holzman, who was the president of Electra Records, said, I want you to come to New York and hear this band that I like. That's Don Gallucci. In 1970, he was a new staff producer for Electra and would end up being assigned to produce Funhouse. He was about the same age as the Stooges, but he'd already been working in the heart of the music industry for years. So I was in Greenwich Village and just, you know, nice little dark club. And a guy comes out and he's wearing jeans, boots, and a dog collar and (laughs) uh, evening length silver LeMay gloves. And he comes out, jumps up on the one of the little cocktail tables, and he grabs one of those fishnet candles and pours the wax down his chest. That's how they opened. Piggy. <laughs> so, so I go back to Jack, and he says, well, what do you think? I said, 
nice act, but you can't get it on tape. Yeah. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And Jack was undeterred, and he said, I want you to record them, right? So they are flown out to uh, Los Angeles, and Jack was very into clean recordings because Electra started as a um, folk record label. A lot of people have an ego hang up because they want to be the only one. How many came before it really doesn't matter just as long as you're the last. Everybody moving on and trying to find out what's been missing in the past. And in those days, there was all kinds of pops and noises and everything. And he was one of the first people to have a solid state board that was very quiet with Dolby sound reduction and all of that latest stuff so somebody could sit on a um, stool and play and there was good fidelity. And the studio, the room itself, had carpets and infinite baffles so that it was totally quiet. It's the opposite of the Kingsman sound. The way Gallucci handled this mismatch of the cleanest sounding studio with the dirtiest sounding band is in part what makes Funhouse so special. Let's take a minute to understand what he means here by the Kingsman sound. Seven years before Funhouse, Gallucci played keyboards on the Kingsman's version of Louie Louie. We'll get back to the Stooges in just a minute, but right now we're going to look at Gallucci's experience recording one of the most famous songs in rock history. We were playing at a place called The Chase, which is a teenage nightclub. The Chase was owned by a DJ called Ken Chase. We were going to record a song so he could say we were recording artists. We had three hours and 50 bucks. This was like what they used to call a jingle studio. So the engineer had never dealt with what he considered this awful rock and roll. <laughs> we play Louie Louie once, and everybody cringes when they hear the vocal. They thought <laughs> it sounded awful. And so Ken Chase had the bright idea. He said, look, kids don't care about the lyrics so much. Turn up the music, turn down the voice. The engineer looks at us with disgust and says, mister, you see that dial there? That's where it's been. That's where it's going to stay. It would not turn it down. And so we have the guy, you know, raise the boom so it's overhead and Jack can't get to it. It did what you weren't supposed to do in those days, is get a room sound. So we do a take with the mic, giving it the sound that you hear, which sounds like a some kind of a goofy party, I guess. You know, Don, the fascinating connection between Louie Louie and, and, of course, Funhouse, Lester Bangs would write a 35,000-word piece uh, that, you know, uh, this birth of punk rock in the 60s by kids who were just having fun, you know, becomes something else again in the 70s with bands like The Stooges. But did you see the connection between what the Kingsman had done, you know, in three hours on a jingle studio budget and what the Stooges would do on Funhouse? Honestly, no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Between Louie Louie and Funhouse, Gallucci spent plenty of time in legit studios. Now, he worked on Dick Clark's TV show where the action is as part of the house band, after all. 
So when he started the Funhouse sessions, he tried getting a clean recording out of this band. Tape is rolling anytime you're ready. It was literally two minutes. We started playing, and I'm in the, the control room of the booth, and it just sounds um, deader than a doornail. I don't know, well, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the term people use is, there was no life to it at all. And so... But it was clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was for sure. Yeah, sure. I'm sitting there and I'm going, this is like so wrong. And they, they don't like me. They think I'm a suit. And I was just a jerk from the label assigned to them. <laughs> At age 21. Yeah, there was no justice. But anyway, I had to take all the carpet out, all the baffles, everything. And I set them up like they were on stage in a row with the drums behind and they were singing to the the booth so to speak we even gave Iggy a handheld mic so he felt comfortable give me that mic it's now my privilege and honor shut up to introduce some guys who hold my utmost respect both in and out of the ring the Stooges and then that was the opposite of what you were supposed to do and it totally undercut the solid state, state-of-the-art boards and, and equipment that they had there. Had to turn it back into a garage. Mm-hmm. So there was this, by requirement, this live sound where everything was leaking into everything. Had no thought about it. It was just trying to get them comfortable to make it sound like it was supposed to. And I think the best part of what I did was not interfere mm-hmm. with them. Yeah, give me a shout when you're going to start, because I don't know what's rehearsal okay. and what's the tune. See that cat? And and plus we had uh, the engineer, a great guy. He was English, and he was the kind of guy, uh, perfect for the Stooges. He wore French cuffs <laughs> to the recording. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, Brian Ross Myring, right? Uh, yeah, he had a, had a real jazz background, I guess. The guy was kind of, I mean, he knew his stuff, but it, this must have been just mind-blowing for him to, to be engineering a record like that with all that bleed on it. This is 1970, tape free. He's a Brit, and he knew to rise to the occasion, hmm. you know. And so uh, he uh, jumped into this approach, and, and I mean... For him, it was almost sacrilege to give uh, Iggy a handheld mic. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was one one session where he was, we're just getting levels, and he's sitting there trying to get to hear Iggy's voice, and he can't hear it, he can't hear it. Iggy's got his back to us. And so he shoves the fader all the way up. Iggy turns around and goes, Hoo! <laughs> and blew out the um, he blew out the monitor speakers. Yes, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> Were they giving you crap? You know, did you earn your way past being the suit from the record company and get their respect, or were you never going to be a stooge? Oh, the latter. But uh, except for the guitar player Ron, mm-hmm. um, he was cordial. The other guys were okay. But see, with Iggy, recording was even a violation of the code because that put it into some permanent take on the, of a feeling he was having at the moment and he didn't even like to be defined like that. Sure. So 
I mean, you know, he wasn't rude, but it was simply this was a, like a necessary evil, you know, yeah. to have to record. Well, yeah, in years later, the eggheads would say, Antonin Artaud, the theater of the absurd, all this stuff. He was just, he, he was a punk who didn't want to be told what to do, right? But he did want to be a star or a performer, be sure. someone bigger than life because he is, you yeah, know? Sure. And uh, so it's that, that great conflict, right, of being the consummate, dedicated artist and someone who likes to get enough money to eat. You know, on a regular basis. How much of it was just chaos and how much of it was them getting what they heard in their heads on your tape? Everything you heard had already been arranged by them and been played for months. Mm. There was no tinkering with anything. We recorded until they got the tempo right and Iggy got his... He was happy with his performance. It was a memorialization of what they'd already worked out. So there's no chaos. Uh, there's mm, no, no chaos. It was actually very straightforward. I mean, I would have rather have heard a beer bottle fall on the piano strings. I mean, that's what you know, people think some of these uh, sessions are like. But no, it was actually very disciplined. I don't know mm. any other way to say it. Well, you can hear that in the take after take that they would do. There was an arrangement there. Some of the uh, renditions would be longer than others or shorter, whatever. But when when did you know you had a take that was like, that's the one? Because, uh, you know, you're clearly doing 15, 20 takes in some days. And, you know, there's minute differences between them. When you're capturing a band sort of in the moment like that, when do you know you've got the moment that you want to put on a, on a vinyl record? The old story about the reporter asking Duke Ellington, what is jazz? Duke Ellington says, son, if you got to ask, you'll never know. You know, yeah, it just yeah. feels right. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, you can tell, I mean, when we're playing on the edge of the seat, on the edge of our chair, it's the same tempo, but somehow there's this fire in it. Somehow there's this life, you know. You just can't not listen. And there were some cases, just uh, little odds and ends that they would prefer. But basically, I knew it had to sound spontaneous. And, you know, I hope that was the track uh, I picked. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. what, what do you think of the record now, Don? I mean, do you have a sense of uh, would you have done anything differently or any regrets or what's your I, sense I, of it? Honestly, uh, I thought... For something that was, I guess it's considered the birth or the precursor of punk, to me it's remarkably clean and, and well recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow there was, you know, a consistency in the approach that since it was a whole different approach, it didn't sound like, you know, one from here and one from there, that it was, a, it was of a piece, if you will. This is When you turned this record into Jack Holzman and Electra, what was the response you got from the record label? Jack looked at me and he said, nice record. Hmm, really? He really liked it. He mm -hmm. really liked it. He got it. And then, of course, it went nowhere. Yeah. At the time. Did you hear later when the Stooges covered Louie Louie? They did? 
Oh my God, Don, you don't know this story? There's a live album called Metallic KO that was recorded in front of an audience of Hell's Angels. And the angels were throwing bricks and bottles at Iggy throughout the entire concert. <laughs> and the concert ends after Louie Louie when one of the bottles knocks Iggy unconscious. You know, that is a good story. Oh, it's classic, wow. Don, yeah. It's all full circle, brother. That's what I'm telling you. Louie Louie, fun house, beginning, the end, the end is the beginning. You, you can find it, oh, Don. My, you got to listen to that. That would be great. I, the whole thing with Louie Louie was if I met people over the years, they would curse me because they, when they were at, uh, performing anywhere, they had to play Louie Louie for 45 minutes. <laughs> Thank you very much to the person who threw this glass bottle at my head. Nearly killed me, but you missed again, so you have to keep trying next week. Just a few years after producing Funhouse, Gallucci would leave the music industry entirely, while the Stooges album would slowly grow in stature. Now, after a short break, we're going to take a close look at the two very different sides of Funhouse and trace its influence on music to this very day. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and he is in his glory because we are doing a classic album dissection of the Stooges' 1970 album, Funhouse. I'm going to put a dagger through your heart right now <laughs> and blow your mind, because I don't like Funhouse very much. Yeah? I don't like the second half of this album. If I was going to know, I love the Stooges, okay? And if I'm going to the Desert Island, I am taking the first album. I am taking Raw Power. I think I would then go to about two or three or maybe even five Iggy Pop solo albums before Funhouse. Interesting. See, this record has everything I like in rock and roll about it. Yeah, I know. Everything. I know. Well, see, that's everything. why I'm doing it. You know, because I know what this album means to you. I know that you love it. And uh, and also, you know, Lester Bangs, my, my godhead hero of rock criticism, you know, wrote an endless... I mean, it's like 33,000 words long piece called Of Pop and Pies and Fun, which in the annals of rock criticism is considered uh, one of the formative arguments for the trash aesthetic. Mm -hmm. You know, Lester's uh, got a million lines in there, but but one of the key ones is it takes courage to make a fool of yourself. Mm -hmm. He is arguing at the height of rock pomposity, you know, James Taylor right. and Yes and Genesis, that no, 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 the idiots are the ones <laughs> who've really got something going. Now, all that having been said, there are four songs on the first side of the record, uh, you know, and, and one really good song uh, on the second, 1970, and then it goes off into, like, skronk, avant-jazz, <laughs> chaos noise. That's what you like about it. Yeah, I do. You know, I wanted more of the songs on side one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we sort of joke about this primitive nature, and Bangs even said, talk about the idiots. Iggy was a smart dude, a very yeah. smart man. He's an intellectual. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, he was... 
considered one of the most gifted students in his class in high school. He happened to grow up in a trailer park, but he was a smart man. He, he read. He was a thinker. One of the best interviews I've ever had in terms of just being able to intellectualize yeah. what was going on behind it. Yeah, but he, he had a vision for this record. Yeah, That's but the also, point. Don't, you know, don't forget, he also liked to like break glass and roll around in it and yeah. cut himself. I mean, you know, put peanut butter all over himself at the Cincinnati Pop Festival. I mean, he... You know, he's kind of a lunatic, too. Well, you know, I think the mix of eroticism and danger in his performance was unequaled, and it remains unequaled in rock in terms of of what a front man can do. Yes. Uh, And I think that was on display. And I think the key here is, okay, two two visions coming together on this record. Huge influence, James Brown. Come on. I feel all right. One time. Uh, Now you got it. Put it up. talked long and hard about how much they were listening to the great James Brown band of the late 60s with people like Jimmy Nolan and Maceo Parker and Clyde Stubblefield and the notion that this funk group was at the root of what they loved about Brown and they wanted to do their own take on it and then the other side of that was listening to John Coltrane and Albert Eiler this scronky jazz groove that they wanted to bring in with Steve McKay on saxophone especially on side two. Now the late Stooges guitarist Ron Ashton told us how that happened when we spoke with him in 2006. That was what we were really into at that time. We were just really getting into uh, Farrell Sanders, John Coltrane, Archie Shepard. We loved James Brown always. We were like little spoiled kids. <laughs> yes, we like that, so we're going to use some of that. We're going to play with that. Hmm. And then when the Doors did that sax thing on Touch Me. We liked that, so the idea was, gee, we're having fun. This is what we like. We knew Steve McKay. He, had been, he was already in several bands in Ann Arbor. He was a local character. We'd run into him. We hung with him. We saw his other musics, other bands he was in. Carnal Kitchen, the charging rhinoceros of soul. So, <laughs> so he was well-versed in all that kind of stuff. Charging rhinoceros of soul did play the funk music. Hmm. And his other bands were doing a little bit more you know, training where he could step out and really blow. So the idea was just, hey, we got these songs. Hey, it's really cool. You can do it right here. And then at the end of the set, we like to go, what we call just let one go, which means, well, freak out. Freak out. Just make a <laughs> bunch of noise and stuff. So we wound up figuring out a way to incorporate that into the Funhouse set. And it was only great that, hey, let's get Steve to come and play on that. So we wound up, it was going to be a short-term thing, but we wound up using them for a long time until the band started to uh, crumble at the edges. And of course, he was one of the first things to go.
Ann Arbor is close to Detroit. Detroit, especially in the late 60s, mid 60s, you know, when these guys are having their musical consciousness formed, there is not that strict boundary between we will hear garage rock like Louie Louie yeah. on the radio and we will hear black music from Motown. Detroit mm. is Motown, right? You know, even if they were relatively primitive musicians, especially, you know, the two Ashton brothers, they just grew up with it, man. They, they knew that groove. Yeah, the, that groove it, was important. The intense drum grooves. You know, it's a sex album. No two ways about it. Down on the street, loose, TVI, dirt, the things I love on side one. Down on the They are rather raunchy and ribald. Like I said, TVI, uh, the Stooges' girlfriends were talking about the the looks they mm-hmm. would get from men on the street. You know, and Iggy turns it around, and he he becomes the man who's becoming uh, looked over by the women, right? And then also there's this kind of prescient for 1970 idea of the all-seeing camera. We are beginning Mm -hmm. to live our lives on television 24-7. I don't think he would have sat around with the uh, Ashton brothers and Dave Alexander and discussed Marshall McLuhan. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't think it would have happened, okay? He knew Marshall McLuhan, right? But that's in there, too. Um, It is at the same time self-denigrating dirt. Mm -hmm. I'm dirt. I'm dirt, and I don't care. This is where this notion of the beginning of punk. You can't possibly insult me, society of which I am not a member, because any insult you give me, I will just claim as my own. Mm -hmm. All right? That was worth writing about, down on the street. Right. It was almost like I'm I'm a gutter boy. I am the lost, forgotten boy. You know, right. and this this matters too. There's a whole America out there that no one sees or cares about or puts down. They were talked about as trailer trash, dirt bags. Yeah. Every lousy name you could call somebody, they were it. And as you said, they owned it. And I think that was really important about the lyrics here. You know, some people say, well, they were dumb. I, I think there's actually some poetry here. He just stripped it down to the most basic words, but at the same time, the conviction with which he sang them and the ideas that he was putting forth in those few words were really important. Well, you're, you're going to launch into side two, but I want to have uh, ask you a question first. So on the Stooges' debut album, it's 1969, okay, War Across the yep. USA, right? Well, it's 1969, okay, War Across the USA. And on album number two, Fun House, it's 1970. Mm-hmm. How do you see those two songs 
relating to. I mean, you know, you know, because Iggy is singing out of my mind on a Saturday night, 1970, rolling in sight. Yeah. And I don't know if he's anti 70. I mean, certainly 69 was no bargain, right? Where is he going in 1970? 69, you're right, is a very dire song, really. It's they're, they're not looking forward to 1969. They're saying right. this is a bad time to be a, a young kid in America right now. 1970, I think they're kind of owning it in a way. They become a dominant live band. They had so much confidence. And at the same time, they realize there's, a, there's all this chaos going around. I think 1970 is the key to the second side of the record. I mean, it opens up this whole idea of embracing chaos. I mean, it sounds like the world is collapsing around you when you listen to this track. Uh, the band not only says, that's cool, we're going to embrace it, we're going to blow it out even further. So, you know, the, the, the lyrics are, are, you know, very terse, very simple. All night I blow away, and he's just screaming, blow, blow, right at Steve McKay. And McKay's going, yeah, I'll give you some of that. And, uh, you know, this, this chaos is not only uh, swirling around them, they're amplifying it, embracing it, and taking it as far as they can go with it. Well, and that's when I hit fast forward, after 1970. <laughs> so you defend for us... Funhouse, the epic centerpiece. It is to the album Funhouse, the song Funhouse, what Sister Ray was to White Light, White Heat. You know, to me, Funhouse is the beginning. You know, we start to see it at the end of 1970, the, the first song on side two, where at the end it starts to blow up. Funhouse, where they're immersing themselves in it. Interestingly enough, Dave Alexander, the one guy in the band that everybody likes to put down the most, he was the first guy kicked out because he couldn't handle the drugs and alcohol. Uh, which was eventually the demise of the Stooges, yeah. the premature demise of But them. he's a good bassist. But he was a good bassist. And then you listen to the way, not only the way Alexander's bass uh, jumps out in this song, but the fact that there was a production decision here to foreground it. <laughs> Again, guitarist Ron Ashton. The song Funhouse. It was fun. <laughs> it was uh, Dave Alexander just came up with that riff one day at practice, and we just built on it. And it's something that laid, was laid wide open for Iggy. He could do whatever. I mean, that was just open book, fill the page. Here they've got the bass as the lead instrument on this song. It is the only thing on that song that is navigating any sense of an arrangement. Everything else is blowing up around them. I think that's the thing that's so exciting about this song, that chaos just keeps growing and building. And by the time it, it just everything is collapsing around him, Dave Alexander is still holding the fort. It's still, still yeah. plowing through it. So to me, the combination of Alexander's bass and the building frenzy around him makes this one of the most exciting tracks in the Stooges lexicon. And I think sort of a template going forward for the way the avant-garde could influence rock and vice versa. But that's not always a good thing. <laughs> you know, it's not there for... There is much self-indulgence Not, not for everybody. And as you well said, 
On side one, there are plenty of indelible songs that like a dabbler, a Stooges dabbler would say, oh, I can relate to that. There's yeah. a hook in there. I can sing along with Loose or, you know, TVI. Yeah. But side two is essentially their homage to John Coltrane, to Albert Eiler, to that, you know, that scronk. You know, MC5 yeah. was experimenting with this. And it should be noted that the Stooges would end their sets. It, their sets would build to this escalating. They would start sort of song-oriented. And by the time they were closing their sets, it was just, everything was falling yeah. apart. All right, but see, Uncle Greg, you know, being older and wiser than me, I mean, I always <laughs> figure Uncle someday Greg. when I retire, I will try to understand jazz. But right now, I've got way too much on my plate, okay? Yeah. You know, I got my Coltrane box sets, and, and like, I'm kind of happy with that and Mingus until someday when I grow up. Yeah. Tell me why I'm wrong. I think that great improvisational jazz, especially of the edgier variety, you know, mm -hmm. is experienced live. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in that room with it, you are not getting it. So when I'm denigrating side two of Funhouse, it is because I am certain I would have liked to have been at that party, and I'm certain it would have blown my mind, okay? Yeah. And I would have felt Alexander's bass in the pit of my stomach, and I would have felt every beat of Ashton's drums, you know? But I'm not getting it on the record, so I'm fast-forwarding. I, I Why am I wrong? I, I, you're not wrong. I mean, that's your taste, and that's fine. I, I mean, I remember when, you know, as a youngster, buying early Coltrane records and going live at the Village Vanguard 2, that kind of thing, and just yeah, going, yeah. what is this? People misled me about this guy. He's, he's a total, you know, noise freak. There's nothing going on here that I can relate to. And later on, once I'd listened to a bunch of Coltrane records, I kind of got it. It, it, like, it became my favorite <laughs> stuff. So someday I'll grow up? I, I don't know about growing up. I think it's more about understanding what, what they're trying to do here. And I think the record builds to the point where by L.A. Blues, it is just noise. In some ways, it can be completely... I mean, you want to clear a room at a party? We mentioned we laughed about the Beefheart yeah. record, uh, yeah, Trout yeah, Mask Replica. Or, or Metal Machine Music. Side, two, Reed, yeah. side two of uh, Fun House would probably accomplish the same oh, thing. Yeah, but there will be 10% of that crowd will stick around and go, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, then you know? you're never getting rid of them. They're there for life. One thing I love about the production on this record is you mentioned the live feel, and there's so much liveliness in the playing here. The way nothing sounds artificial to me. It mm -hmm. doesn't sound like you, oh, you have to make an excuse. Oh, those were 70s production values. No, this is a band that sounds like a real rock band playing in real time. Iggy is singing live along with every track. They, you know, I mean, you talk about a Herculean performance. His voice, he was experimenting with how he was going to using his voice, and it becomes another instrument. So it's another way to listen to the record if you're into that sort of thing. And I can totally understand why somebody wouldn't. I think that some people hate it as actually a good thing. I, I think that if this record, everybody agreed on it, yeah. that the Stooges would have felt like they'd failed. It's just so out of character, you know what I mean? Because I mean, you are, are, generally speaking, the more discreet and uh, genteel of the two of us. I mean, you say it right there. Yeah. This is the greatest album ever. It's so go-to for me, you know. When I need songs, I, I put on side one. When I need something a little, a little, uh, you know, heftier, I'll, I'll put on side two. Well, I think that this album does, uh, in terms of its lasting influence, have uh, a pretty fascinating divide, because there is no denying that there is no noise rock, sonic youth, and the entire avant sound that came out of New York in the late '80s, early '90s. I just want you to know that we can still. Spread 
heads to the UK. All noise rock basically comes yeah. from Funhouse. Meanwhile, we have a lot of bands, you know, from the Minutemen to Husker Du in the 80s indie post-punk era. What are the people who don't have what I ain't got? Are they victims of my leisure? Uh, you know, far more controlled uh, bands like, like, say, Mission of Burma, right? <laughs> you know, drawing inspiration from the song side. Occasionally, these two things collide and overlaps. What I'm fascinated about, Greg, though, in terms of the influence, very, very rarely does anybody follow the groove thing. Mm -hmm. You know that because they can't replicate it. How many times have you seen Iggy as a solo artist with different bands who tried to replicate those sounds? You go, you know, there's something missing here, and it is that groove that Scott Ashton and Dave Alexander had. They just don't get they don't get the credit they deserve. You know, and, and some of this uh, some of this influence is bad. Depeche Mode covering mm-hmm. dirt. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Depeche Mode, just, uh, yeah, I mean, it has a couple of charms, but it should go nowhere near dirt. You know, it's just not right. The Damned covered the, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Stooges from this record. Yeah, right. that makes sense, okay? Probably the most uh, Stooges-like band in terms of really getting both the essence of the Stooges on this record and stealing their name. You know, Australia's Radio Birdman. Now, on 1970, you know, Iggy sings, uh, I always heard it wrong, too. Uh, you, you think you hear Radio Birdman up above, mm-hmm. you know. He's actually singing Radio Burning up mm-hmm. above. Right. Uh, you know, th- these band of Australians led by a uh, brilliant guitarist, uh, one of the great, I think, all-time punk guitarists, Dennis Tech, takes that name, Radio Birdman, and they have a whole career mm-hmm. based on, but based on side one. Who else do you hear, Mr. Avant Jazz Noise Skronk? I mean, yeah, there's John Zorn and all those New York Lower East Side people, right? I mean, who else do you oh, hear yeah. taken off well, from side two? Sonic Youth, the chaotic sides of Nirvana. A lot of people remember In Utero. There were some really noisy songs yeah, on that record. there's chaos. I think that tips from that. band like the White Stripes heavily influenced by the Stooges. You know, obviously Mudhoney, you know, is a band that has, you know, I mean, Mark Arm worships Iggy Pop. He'll he'll be the first to tell you. Even, you know, Kurt jumping into those drum kits and destroying the equipment at the end, you know, that's an Iggy Yeah, but again, we're talking the live experience. What do you think holds up from side two listening to that record? Because it it, just gives me a headache. First of all, I don't think any of that could be replicated. I mean, you'd almost need to have a sensibility. But I do think that Sonic Youth and a lot of those bands from New York, the no-wave thing of the late 70s into the early 80s, that took a lot of cues from what the Stooges were doing on Yeah, but I was there, and that gave me a headache, too. Yeah. 
Maybe I, I'm. I'm with, not saying you I'm have to with, like it. I'm just saying I'm with, we're talking about influence. Though. I'm with producer Gallucci. Yeah, I love Louie Louie. I could live for the you rest of my songs. life with only one song like Louie Louie. Yeah. and I feel that way about Down on the Street, yeah. Loose, TVI, Dirt in 1970. But I, I think in terms of going for that sort of jazz chaos sonic explosion. Uh, they were in a class by themselves. The sound that that band made in merging that avant-garde yeah. jazz with rock was one of a kind. Okay. Why did they never go back to that? I mean, because Iggy has a song career after that, and Raw Power is very much a proto-metal, proto-punk record. They never went back uh, to Funhouse. I think that's why they love that record so much, because the powers that be didn't really want them to make that record again. There was, like, so many forces against it. Bowie basically took him, David Bowie took him under his wing and said, I'm going to write songs that get, will get you on the radio. Mm-hmm. And Iggy was grateful to him for that. But at the same time, because I think they realized without those same personalities involved, you would never have been able to duplicate that. All you would be able to do you, is imitate that's it. That's your theory, right? I, you know? I just love the way you love this record. I do. I love it. So, Greg loves Funhouse. I love half of it. Where do you fall on this classic album? Let us know. Call our hotline at 888-859-1800. When we come back, Greg will take a trip to the desert island and tell us about another song he can't live without. Greg, what do you got for us? Jim, I want to pay tribute to a fallen rock hero that many people probably haven't heard about but should have. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergatis. My pal is Greg Cott, and it is time for a Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do you got? I I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Mark Hollis of Talk Talk, who died uh, suddenly this week at age 64. I I don't think anybody was expecting it. Uh, Songwriter, producer, singer, multi-instrumentalist in the band Talk Talk, prior to that part of the punk scene. What's amazing to me is the evolution of this guy from a punk rocker who barely uh, could play a few chords to a a very sophisticated uh, songwriter, arranger, and producer with Talk Talk. They were kind of a Duran Duran wannabe band in the early days. Fans who know them particularly revere the last three studio albums they released from the mid-80s through the early 90s, The Color of Spring, Spirit of Eden, and Laughingstock. Uh, Hollis came back and made one more studio album in the late 90s and then wasn't heard from for the last 20 years of his career. He said, I'm done with music. You know, I want to spend time with my family, raise my kids. Talk about a cult artist. He's revered more as an influence uh, than an actual hit maker among bands like Radiohead and Explosions in the Sky and Mars Volta. This combination of jazz and ambient music, classical music even, with synth pop and rock. I think the real turning point for them was that mid-80s album, The Color of Spring. That's when his, his voice, his vision, really started to emerge. There was a hit song on that. It was a minor hit in the U.K. and the United States. Um, there's a great guitar riff that sort of uh, threads the song together. It's played by David Rhodes. That's a name that any Peter Gabriel fan will know because he collaborated with Gabriel. 
So in tribute to the late Mark Hollis, here is Talk Talk's Life's What You Make It from 1985 on Sound Opinions. That is Talk Talk with Life's What You Make It in tribute to the writer and the singer on that song, Mark Hollis, uh, who died at the age of 64. A real musician's musician, Greg. I remember talking for hours with uh, Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips about yeah, them. Absolutely. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig deep once again. Uh, we love these segments, uh, Buried Treasures. We're going to play some songs that flew under the mainstream radar, but that you need to know about. Thanks this week to Wally Shoup and our friends at Perfect Sound Forever. Download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things. It's been a crazy couple of weeks for the Sound Opinions team. Thank you more than ever to Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Ina Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm in a phone Scratched on the wall. I'm in a phone booth, baby. Number scratched on the wall. I'm new in Chicago. Got no one else to call. New messages. This is Joey from Chicago. Just got finished listening to your episode about the Chicago Blues and was thrilled that you featured Bruce Iglauer and Alligator Records, starting with Hound Dog Taylor. I was a little remiss, though, that you didn't mention that Hound Dog Taylor had a sixth finger, that when he started to wail on a solo, it would pop up on the bridge, and he would just start wailing away. Bye. Hi, guys. This is Craig from Skokie. Thanks for your show about Alligator Records and your call for blues songs that ring us out. I was reminded of Towns Van Zandt's fact that there are two kinds of music, blues and zippity-doo-dah. So my ring-out blues song is the Catfish song. Well, all you young ladies who dream of tomorrow while you're listening these words will I say cling to today with its joy and its sorrow you'll need all your memories when youth melts away 
Blue. Thanks for the show. My name is Cynthia from Fairlawn, Ohio. Hello, I'm going to leave a message about a song that I find I need when I get uh, sad and depressed. I like some of the blues songs because I really feel for them. And I like the one, uh, one scotch, one whiskey, one beer by John Lee Hooker. One bourbon, one scotch, and one bill. One bourbon, one scotch, and one bill. The bartender, come here. I want another drink and I want it now. That one just gets to me. Thank you for this show today. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Jeff from Chicago. I want to say I really enjoyed your episode on Chicago Blues thought it would be an appropriate time to do a musical obituary for Mike Ledbetter. Mike was a classically trained opera singer that turned his attention to the blues and just burned up the scene over the last couple of years until his untimely death last month at age 33. If you want a song to ring out your soul, something like, I can't please you ought to do the trick. Thanks. Share your opinions on Sound Opinions. Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.